0: Those of you that weren't here last week, you might, didn't get the uh, word on it maybe, but tonight's talk is on fear. And I was uh, telling the group last week I didn't want to scare people off, but (laughs) here we are. (laughs) So, how to be awake and be courageous in the midst of fear. How to really cultivate a fearless heart is the topic. And it will be this week and next week that we'll be exploring this. And I like to kind of divide it in two parts and in the first part of the exploration really to recognize how we go into a trance of fear and I'll describe what that means but we get caught in a kind of fear trance and if we can recognize that we're in it that's the first step to being free. And then the second part is really how we cultivate a fearless heart. And I like to start by saying that fear is not a mistake and it's not unnatural. I think some of the biggest suffering around fear is that when we're afraid, there's some added sense that we're not supposed to be, that something's off, like our machinery's not working right or something. And in a way, you could think of it that being without fear is being brain dead. It is. Every creature, every creature has some version of fear. It arises from our limbic system, which is responsible, as they say, for the four F's of survival feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproduction. So So the Buddha described that we all have, we have this universal conditioning to perceive a sense of a separate self. And if you scan, there is some, as much as we talk about oneness, we, the architecture of the brain has us spend a lot of our time with a sense of a self in here and a world out there and hand-in-hand hand with that and I think the term that is, describes it best, the primal mood of the separate self is fear. And to the degree that we feel separate or cut off or isolated that fear is strong. From the Vedas, in the beginning there was simply the absolute, the mind of the absolute present in the infinite dark. Then within the mind of the absolute there arose the thought, I am. And immediately following that thought, there came fear. So I think that's interesting, just a sense that the earliest single-celled creatures had a membrane that said, self in here, world out there, and we have it very elaborate. And with that there's the whole swirl of wanting and fearing that comes. And as it happened, and I've shared this in here, if you think of evolution, those creatures that might have been in those early creatures, early mammals that might have been laid back and just and decide to lay back on a rock and enjoy the hot sun or enjoy the smell of the cherry blossoms or whatever are the ones that would have gotten crunch, you know, eaten and it was the ones that were hyper-vigilant that were, had a real nervous nervous system, right? Those are the ones that best were able to survive and we inherited that, that wiring to be vigilant so it's not our fault that we are, uh, have a lot of fear moving through our system. We inherit it. And with humans, because we have this frontal lobe and we do a lot of thinking ahead and remembering, fear can get quite strong. I like this description. Uh, a monk from one of the monasteries in, in Great Britain describes how a fellow monk was very fearless, and he had very bad teeth and As it turned out, he had the habit of extracting his teeth without anesthesia and He said he found it no not to be a problem and It seems that that was pretty impressive, but he even went one better. He pulled out his own teeth without the anesthesia, and they saw him outside the monastery workshop, holding a freshly pulled tooth smeared with his blood in the claws of an ordinary pair of pliers. It was no problem, he cleaned the pliers of blood before he returned them to the workshop. <laughs> so one monk asked him how he could even manage to do such a thing. And he sa- what he said exemplifies why fear is the major ingredient in pain and suffering. He said this, when I decided to pull out my own tooth, it was such a hassle going all the way to the dentist, that didn't hurt. So when I decided it, that didn't hurt. When I walked to the workshop, that didn't hurt. When I picked up the pair of pliers, that didn't hurt. When I held the tooth in the grip of the pliers, that didn't hurt either. When I wiggled the pliers and pulled, it did hurt then, but only for a couple of seconds. Once the tooth was out, it didn't hurt much at all. There was only five seconds of pain. You, my friend, probably grimaced when you heard this story because of fear, you probably felt more pain than he did. And if you tried the same feed it would probably hurt terribly even before you reached the workshop to get the pliers. In other words, anticipation, fear, is the major ingredient of pain. And we know that. You know, Mark Twain commented on it um, years and years ago when he said, uh, the worst things in my life never actually happened, you know. So, Fear is not the enemy, it's actually nature's protector and it only becomes troublesome when it goes out of bounds, when it proliferates and that's what we're going to look at not just, I mean, we're supposed to feel fear a child runs in the street, we feel fear we, you know, in, in any situation where there's an immediate threat there's fear, we're supposed to feel it, it's intelligent but where we get in trouble is how much of our mind spins with worry thoughts just out of habit and creates the biochemistry of fear when it's not necessary. Some of you might remember the woman that sends a telegram to her son and it says, start worrying, details to follow, you know, but you get the idea, you know, it's said that we have 60,000 thoughts a day and 95% of them we had yesterday. You know, we live in this cocoon that's familiar and if we really look at our thoughts so many of them have to do with what might go wrong and how to avoid that. So there's a deep tendency to assume something is wrong and I invite you to kind of check that out as part of your mindfulness through the day. How many moments, if you just pause and say, okay, is everything really okay right now? there's some assumption it isn't quite okay. And that's driving the thoughts and driving the feelings. This is what I call the trance of fear, that it's not based on an actual immediate threat, but this habit of the mind to be assuming something's wrong and generating worry thoughts, getting caught in the whole feeling of that. And you might just um, close your eyes for a moment and just check in. I like to pause during these talks and, and really have you just sense what is true for you. I find that often we don't even know it but if we check our bodies there's kind of a habitual kind of clutch or tightness or anxiety if we really feel our throat, our chest, our belly there can be often this kind of habitual tightness and you might even sense today you know, how you move through the day and to what degree you felt the day was flavored by some anxiety about what you needed to do or what was coming up or if you were doing things well enough how others were perceiving or receiving you just a kind of honest review to sense how much there was that kind of undercurrent of what we call the trance of fear that was driving your behaviors. When you'd like you can open your eyes. So what fuels the trance of fear is that rather than becoming present and opening to what's here we keep on running away and trying to fix things and make things right. In other words, we're reacting to fear in our body and it locks it in. In other words, if you feel fear and you run away from it, you try to make things different, you try to avoid things going wrong, it actually reinforces the sense that something's wrong. So anything but pausing and actually bringing a healing presence to the fear. Anything other than that actually fuels the trance of fear. And it becomes what I call kind of the body of fear. And you can see it. You can see that the mind gets trapped in these kind of rigid patterns of thinking. We're constantly thinking ahead. You know, anything anything that happens can end up become catastrophic thinking, and many of us know what that's like. Especially as you're getting older, how any sort of ache or pain becomes a certain kind of disease you really didn't want to get. At <laughs> that happens to me. Or you think ahead, and all of a sudden get overwhelmed, and how it's you can't. There's no way possible to get things done. So we get hooked on figuring things out and anticipating and trying to be um, bright and clever and. A story that I love um, shared with this group last year, I thought I'd share again. A wealthy man went on a safari in Africa and decided to take his beloved pet poodle along for company. One day the poodle started chasing some butterflies and found himself totally lost. Wandering about trying to find his way back, the poodle saw a leopard rapidly heading his way. Uh-oh, he thought to himself. Now, this is real danger, okay? Luckily, the poodle noticed some bones on the ground close by and immediately turned his back to the approaching cat and started to chew on them. Just as the leopard was about to pounce, the poodle called out, Boy, that was one delicious leopard, but I'm still hungry. I wonder if there's another around. Upon hearing this, the leopard halted his attack in mid-stride, a look of abject terror on his face. He crawled off into some nearby trees thinking, Boy, that was a close call. That creature nearly got me. (laughs) Meanwhile, a monkey had been watching this whole scene from high in a nearby tree. The monkey called out to the leopard, promising some valuable information (laughs) in return for the leopard's protection. The leopard agreed to the deal and, of course, was furious to learn that he had just been made a fool of. The leopard, now with the monkey on his back, took off to find and eat the conniving canine. Once again, the poodle saw the leopard, this time with a monkey in its back approaching. The poodle quickly put two and two together. Poodles are really smart. (laughs) While realizing he wouldn't have time to escape, so he sat down with his back to his attackers, pretending he hadn't seen them. And just when they got close enough to hear, he exclaimed, where is that damn monkey? I set him off an hour ago to bring me another leopard. (laughs) So we place an enormous amount of value on these clever brains, we're hooked on it, trying to figure things out and anticipating. And it's interesting to sense how many moments there's some process of trying to figure something out. Even when it's not an important thing, there's some figuring going on. We're always churning and this is fear-based. Now, if you pause and you check underneath those worry thoughts, planning thoughts, figuring thoughts, restless thoughts. What you find in your body is a tightness. I mean the biochemistry of fear does send messages to clench and tighten and there is a kind of universal experience of clenching if you step out of the thoughts and actually pay attention to your body. And what you will find and this is interesting, because each of us, when we are very, very young, as we begin to lock into fear patterns, certain muscles in the body tighten habitually. And it affects our posture, and it affects the functioning of our organs, and it affects how our bodies aligned as we get older. As you start meditating and discovering the body of fear underneath the thoughts, you start sensing that habitual clutching. You'll notice that when I say you might want to re-relax your body that the body has already tightened again. It's a habit of the body. So Chogyam Trungpa, a Tibetan teacher who I think is wonderful, described it this way. He said, we're a bundle of tense muscles defending our existence. even when we relax, there's this retightening. As long as the mind is producing these thoughts about how we might fail, about what's going to go wrong. And by the way, the main worry thought we have is about personal insufficiency and failure. We get very, very hooked. This is the trance of unworthiness, that we're very hooked on the stories of what's wrong with us and that produces the biochemistry of fear. Finally, or not finally, we have the emotional body of fear where not only do we feel the physical feelings but there's the emotion of fear and with that often there's shame with the vulnerability of fear there's some sense of I shouldn't be feeling this, something's wrong with me something's really wrong and we get very caught in that sense of something's wrong with me there was um, about eight years ago The Washington Post had a t-shirt award and the winning t-shirt, I have occasional delusions of adequacy. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got the body of fear, we've got the thoughts that are churning and we've got the physical tightness and we've got the emotions of fear. And then finally our behaviors and how many of our behaviors, how many moments of how we speed around or rush around or snap at others or whatever the behavior is, and usually it's addictive overeating. and well, those of you coming to the day long will be exploring the addictive ways are driven by fear. The ways we lash out, driven by fear. So it's what I call a false refuge, these behaviors, you're trying to get rid of the fear but it actually reinforces it. This is Rumi, he says, which reminds me of the mother who tells her child when you're walking through the graveyard at night and you see a boogeyman run at it and it will go away but what replies the child if the boogeyman's mother has told it to do the same thing (laughs) (laughs) boogeymen have mothers too (laughs) so what mindfulness reveals is the body of fear and it's exacerbated by our genetic inheritance. Some of us have nervous systems that are more inclined. It's exacerbated by a culture that keeps on telling stories of what's wrong and what's going to go wrong, and a culture where there's not an innate kind of belonging to nature and the earth. It's exacerbated in our personal biographies. The origin of fear is a sense of separateness. And to the extent that when we were brought up in our families of origin, there was not the kind of bonding that really made us feel loved and safe and seen. To that extent, our systems clutch. Something's wrong. You know, I didn't think I was going to share this, but I think this is interesting. I've been reading a bit about um, some of the studies with chimps. And as many of you have heard, when a chimp doesn't get the proper kind of attachment bonding. When chimps are isolated, they'll die, and same with children. Um, But even when it's not total isolation, when a chimp does not receive good parenting, and the way they did the experiment that I thought was really interesting, is they took a chimp mother and they made it unpredictable when she'd get food, so she was um, distracted and concerned. And she was preoccupied in a way that she couldn't give consistent attention to her chimp baby. And that inconsistent, distracted parenting, which is how many of us got it, the the, the um, results, it changes the neurotransmitters and the level of anxiety and depression in the chimp as a full-grown adult. There's vastly more incidences of binge eating. So anxiety, depression, binge eating from this kind of erratic parenting. When we didn't have good bonding, it creates fear. So there's a background to it. And yet, regardless of what the background is, there are ways that we can spiritually reparent ourselves, that we can bring a healing, soothing, freeing attention to our inner life that actually changes our relationship to fear. Joseph Campbell, who most of you have heard of, he said the beginnings of all religious and spiritual traditions, at the beginnings of them, are the cry, help. Every one of us perceives a sense of separation as reaching out for some sense of belonging, of safety, of ease. Religions grow out of that we can either seek false refuge when we feel fear, meaning produce more, prove ourselves more, eat more, run away, or, and the only way we can heal fear is to begin to pause in the middle of seeking false refuge and say, oh, what's here? To not be the distracted parent to our own fear but arrive fully and in some deep way, nourish and comfort the place within us. To let go of the thoughts, to open to presence. Let me read you Rumi again. He says, Be empty of worrying. Think of who created thought. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open. Move outside the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down in always widening rings of being. Flow down and down in always widening rings of being. So the path of fearlessness is to begin to get the knack of waking up out of the thoughts and come into this presence that can become vaster and vaster, a healing presence. One of the metaphors I really like for how we bring this kind of nourishing presence to the very place that feels so scary came out of um, the Tibetan tradition Um, in, oh, about a thousand A.D. There was a Tibetan yogini, that's a female practitioner, whose name was Machig. And she was having her initiation, her spiritual initiation, with a group of her sister yoginis. And she went into a deep meditation and levitated... And as the story goes, and this, these are the myths, but they're quite beautiful She kind of, her, her body just kind of moved through the clay enclosure of the um, walls of the temple And she floated out and and rested in this tree that was right in the middle of a pond Now the pond was a place of what are called the nagas And nagas are water spirits and they have quite, they're capricious and often very destructive and they can, and they terrify people and so much so this particular pond, nobody would go near, they wouldn't even look towards it because the Naga there was a particularly lively, vicious one. But there she was, there was Meichig actually in the tree in the middle of the pond. The Naga in there made all sorts of fearful, fearsome movements towards her, but she didn't, she just, meditating. So what he did was he went and he rallied all the neighborhood Nagas, the whole mess of them around the area, and um, the local demons, basically. And they all came and they all attacked this young, very young woman. I think she was like 19, 20, 21, adept yogi. So they attacked her and she just, she sat there meditating. And then what she did was she turned her body into nectar and she fed her body to the Nagas. So she offered her body as food, and, but they backed off. And so she got to sit there, and not only did they back off, they transformed into her allies, her protectors. And this story is the beginning of what's uh, the meditation practice called chod, C-H-O-D, which is very much what we're talking about here. For those of you that have been exploring RAIN, R-A-I-N, chode is a practice of feeding the demons, of getting to know them and offering care to them. Feeding the demons. So the basic principle tonight that we are exploring is that when fear arises, rather than the false refuge of spinning in our thoughts, of running away, of addictive behavior, we pause, we get to know the shadow side of fear and we actually offer care to the fear There was one uh, young man, his parent was uh, meditated and as an adolescent he confided in his parents that ever since he was a child he had these nightmares that monsters were chasing him and, and whenever he'd have the nightmares he'd run and run and run and no matter what he did he'd slam a door and they'd open it and he'd you know run outside and they'd follow him or he'd dive into a cave and th- it's just everywhere he went they'd follow him and then he'd wake up sweating and freaked out and it was going on even as he was 16, 17 and the mom just sat down with him and she said what is the uh, what do the monsters look like? Well, he didn't know, he had always been running away from them, right? So a week later he told his mother that the nightmare had happened again, the monsters were chasing him, but all of a sudden he stopped running, he turned around, the monsters, there were about five of them, were still there and they looked pretty intense, but he just stayed there and looked at them and gradually what happened is they were still there and still there, but they turned it in, They turned into comic book characters, like two-dimensional comic book characters. And then he woke up and that was it. He never had the dream again. There's an amazing power to not running. Now sometimes it's not so easy. I mean, it's not like, oh, the the fear turns into a comic book character and dissolves and we live happily ever after. It doesn't always happen like that, okay? I find that when fear comes up, it's just an ongoing practice to bring presence to that fear. Um, One woman I worked with, I'll give you an example of the power of it, though, was going through a custody battle. And so I was working with her at a very, very difficult period of her life where she was feeling just constantly anxious, like she was gonna, she lost her marriage, she could lose her child, she felt like she was on the edge at work because she was so snappy that she couldn't take any criticism and there's a lot of conflict at work. And um, so she was in a kind of chronic state of kind of a grip of fear. So during our session together, um, she told me all the stories that were going in her mind of how she was gonna fail and what was gonna go wrong. And this deep sense that she was going to blow it, then when she dropped her stories and felt her experience, you know, I said, okay, so what, what form, what, this fear that's in there, what does it look like? You know, I asked her that. Now that's not, you don't always have to do that, but sometimes you can give the fear um, some shape, some appearance, and it comes naturally, which is very much the Tibetan practice. For her, it was a wolf. It was a wolf with these, with these yellow, blazing eyes that were, you know, just kind of tearing her apart with just his eyes and burning through her, really. And I asked her to sense what, the, what that wolf, that fear, really wanted. She said, it wants to destroy me, you know, it wants to criticize me and destroy me. So then I asked her, well, what does it need? I mean, if it could destroy you, what would it be getting? And she thought for a bit and she said, Ah, oh. then it would be able to be safe and relaxed and feel loved. It would feel accepted and loved. So I, we explored what would it mean to be able to give that wolf love. Now it was hard because she was in a state of fear and to give love when we're afraid is hard. So she called on her um, her grandmother, she kind of remembered the love of her grandmother and had her grandmother help her offer the wolf love. But what she did was, like this practice, she felt with her grandmother's presence that she could kind of offer her, dissolve her body into love and offer it to this wolf. And the wolf would kind of lap it up. And gradually the wolf started transforming in her, before her eyes. and what happened was it just became these golden eyes but they were like a glow that was warm and just reminded her of being alive and warm and clear. And it was like they became this kind of protective energy to remind her that love is what matters. And so she had to keep feeding the wolf so She had to do, over a period of four months, she said she was feeding them like ten times a day. You know. So here's the process. What would happen is the fear would come up and she would drop her stories and feel the fear and sense what it needed. And as I teach here sometimes, I sometimes say, put your hand on your heart and offer the care inward that way. She would kind of dissolve inward that love. She'd imagine feeding this wolf that love. And again, over and over again, it would transform into this sense this energy that says, oh, love is what matters, love is what matters. So what freed her up? Let's just take a look at it and break this down a little. There's two pieces. And this is is the basic teaching with fear. The first piece is a wholehearted presence that we can't transform our relationship with fear unless we stop, unless we pause and hang out and get to know it and be present with it unless we give it what it needs, which is always, like any child that feels cut off, it's always to be seen and accepted and loved, always. Some version of that. So stop, come beneath the thoughts, feel what's there in the body, and offer the care. Now, there was another thing she did, which was that she called on something larger, and that's another part of the practice, is that when we're afraid, we're contracted and we forget where love is. We forget that there are people that love us. We forget that there's places in our own being that are still and wise and loving. So sometimes you have to intentionally pray for, intentionally call on love. This is Hafiz, he says, How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise we all remain too frightened." Now the challenge is that it's deep in our conditioning to do the opposite of presence. When there's fear, we speed up. We speed up, we dissociate from our body, and we start judging. Those are the three things we usually do. <laughs> Check it out, really. When there's fear, we get, we start, our mind speeds up, we start moving around faster. Either that or we freeze totally. When there's fear, we tend to cut off from our body. We're not aware of being here. And we tend to judge. So, this was Henry David Thoreau's advice. He says, if a dog runs at you, whistle for it. (laughs) That when fear arises, and this is a Zen master, put it this way, how do you relate with fear? I agree, I agree. That each of us here, when we get caught in the trance of fear, can have a little more of this willingness to instead of that flinch response of getting busy and cutting off, to get interested. The acronym RAIN that we use so often is to recognize and allow, RA, that the fear is here. I agree. I agree. Okay, it's here. Don't make it wrong so quickly. One of my friends says that when fear arises it's like a little bubble that goes about to grow, about to grow because fear marks the edge of our comfort zone. It's not that something's really wrong. It's a conditioning that if we stay present the other side of it is a profound freedom of our heart, is an opportunity to love without holding back we can't love freely when we're scared, when we're believing that something's wrong. We're too preoccupied, too tight. So for the sake of living and loving fully we make this commitment that when fear arises, get interested. I agree. Okay, I agree. To feel it there. And then even to lean in a little. I think it's a good word. That when fear arises let go of the thoughts and kind of lean in with interest so there's recognize and allow, RA and then the I is get intimate with it the first part of the getting intimate is to investigate get to know it just let your mind go to that recognize it, let it be there investigate, get to know it get intimate with it the other part of getting intimate be kind towards it offer the demon what it needs. And when we do, and this is the Anan rain, there is a shift which is the very essence of Buddhist meditation. The shift when we're present with fear or whatever is that rather than the fearful self being caught in that trance of fearful, scared self, we become the presence we open to become that tender, awake space that's really whole and free. It's the whole reason we practice, is to realize who we are. That the conditioning's natural. It's natural to get scared. And our capacity is to be with the fear and realize our wholeness. That if we trust the ocean, trust that we're the ocean, We're not afraid of the waves. Sense that for a moment. If you can trust you're the ocean, the wholeness of who you are, you're not afraid of the waves. So let's practice this a little. Let's just do a short meditation so you get to kind of sense it with something that's alive for you. This is probably, more than any of my words, the most valuable part of the evening for you is to actually check it out a little. This will be our closing meditation. And just to say that Rumi writes of night travelers. So what we're doing is being a night traveler. We're checking out the darker stuff. He talks of night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it. He says, the night travelers are a companionship of people willing to know their own fear, realizing that in the tenderness of the fear, night travelers discover the awakened heart. So it helps to sense that we're night travelers, that we are travelers of the light, of sensing the beauty and mystery and goodness and travelers of the night, opening to the vulnerability. And it helps to do it together. Again, Rumi says, don't turn away. He says, keep your gaze on the bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. In these moments, let this be another pause. However this day has been, often we tumble forward through the day. Give yourself this gift of arriving once again. And relax into this pause. Let the breath be natural. Let your senses be awake. Be right here. You might, with a kind of listening attention sense, if there's some part of your life that's asking for your attention where there's some fear, some situation or circumstances where you go into the trance of fear, maybe something coming up that you're anxiously anticipating, maybe something going on in a close relationship. Maybe something going on with your body or somebody else who is having trouble. For some moments let the stories, the situation, be in your mind so you can sense what about it scares you, what are you really afraid of. Is it that you'll fail in some way? That you'll lose something important? Somebody you care about might lose something that's important? Take some time to just sense how the fear lives in your body so that underneath the story of what's happening you just can feel what the body of fear is this is the recognizing and allowing just agree to let it be here it's okay if it's something really traumatizing then probably not so valuable to go into it right now rather just feel your breath and know that there'll be a time that you'll have the resources the company, the support take refuge in your breath but if it's not so traumatizing you might feel it very directly in your body as Rumi says, don't turn away keep your gaze on the bandage place you might feel your breath where the fear is and just breathe with it You might even put your hand on your heart and just offer your own company, a kind of kind presence to the fear, just the way that woman did, really in some way feeding that fearful place your care. However works for you to bring an intimate attention to where you feel fear. Sometimes all the fear needs is to be acknowledged and accepted that it's here. That itself gives space. Just don't turn away. Keep your gaze on the bandaged place. Notice what happens when in some way, without any resistance, there is an offering of kindness, of a kind presence to the place that feels scared. You might imagine and sense and feel the energy of love just pouring into that place. And it helps to think of somebody that loves you and understands you and feel their energy and love pouring in, too. That's quite fine. Sensing the night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it, people willing to know their own fear, and discovering the tenderness Awakened heart when we're really present with fear. Taking some moments to notice the presence itself, the quality of open, tender space that can hold this fear. If you trust you're the ocean, this presence. You're not afraid of the waves. We close with a simple offering of care of a prayer to our own hearts. The vulnerable places in our own hearts, just send whatever message you'd like to to your own being right now. May you feel safe. May you feel safe. May you feel safe. May you feel feel happy. may you know the joy of being alive may you be free to love without holding back may you know your very essence as loving presence may all beings everywhere face and embrace the vulnerability and fear in their hearts May all beings everywhere touch great and natural peace. May there be peace everywhere. May all beings be free. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.